Hello, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Weaving Myths Season 2. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today is Eric. Good evening. Colin. Hello, everyone. And Rodrigo. Hello. Alright, uh, we are all moderators or administrators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. If you, too, would like to be part of the text chat, feel free to join us on the Mythweavers Discord server every other Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, we're going to be talking about keeping things PG-13 and designing challenges and encounters. After that, we have a new segment we're going to be trying out, and of course, the game of the week. So, before we get into the topics for the evening, I just want to say we have a surprise special guest this evening. Rodrigo is joining us on the show for the first time ever, so hello, Rodrigo! Alright, well, let's jump straight into the first topic for the evening. Uh, we are going to be talking about how to keep things PG-13. So, Mythweavers has a very strict rule on the website. And that is, everything on the site has to be PG-13 or below. Um, so we're going to talk about some strategies you can use to keep it within those guidelines. So, Colin, would you like to start us off? I was going to say, we're not fixing the policy. The policy sure. is good. Yeah, no, the policy is great. Well, <laughs> the important statement on policy, the way Mythweavers is set up is we want to be open to all ages. So Mythweavers is not the place for adult themes role-playing. It has never been and never if you're after gory horror, erotic games, stuff like that, there are plenty of websites out there for that, but Mythweavers is not the place for it. That being said, Mythweavers is a gaming site, and gaming sites can include simulated violent combat, romance, ruthless villains, otherworldly powers. The rules are written broadly because it's impossible to cover any possible situation with specific do-do-not points. So the spirit of the rules is summed up as some things are just inappropriate, don't post them, keep explicit content implicit, and to a minimum. Our general baseline is the United States PG-13 movie ratings. All right, so flip this on their head as a prospective GM. How do you know where that line in the sand is? Because you admit it up front, it's kind of fuzzy. How do you go about making an entertaining and engrossing game without running afoul of that rule? Because as a GM, part of your job is to enforce the rules within your game form. I actually kind of had a situation like this come up in one of my games recently. Um, Colin knows what I'm talking about. But in my Pond game, there was a kind of introduction period where characters were joining after a re-recruiting period. So uh, we had some new characters joining us. and one of the first things that happened was someone threw out some innuendo and within as far as the game went i think it was within the rules um i'd have to read it again to point out specifics but there was some there were some good times there in other words we ran rampant for a page and a half of posts before nathan looked at anything uh, yeah basically well innuendo is an excellent tool for when you are wanting to imply something and not actually show it on screen. And I think that's really one of the biggest tools that we can give the GMs is to tell the story in a way that lets the player's imaginations run with the special details that we don't need to post. I think that um, there's also something to be said for people's personal boundaries when we are playing. The website is laying down some pretty poorly defined, but, you know, a, a little bit of a, of a fuzzy outline of, of what these boundaries are going to be. And the benefits that you have when you're playing around a table with people who you've known for years is that you tend to know their boundaries pretty well, and you tend to know uh, or be able to see when they are uh, uncomfortable or otherwise not okay with something that's going on at the table. It's really difficult to communicate uh, in a purely text medium, especially one that's asynchronous like play-by-post is. So part of part of this is about respecting the fact that someone may, with the idea of of role playing torture or or role playing sexual encounters or even describing um, you know uh, combat violence um, in in too much detail. There's uh, uh, 
expectation of, of respect that those boundaries may be there and the other person may not be able to communicate those effectively just due to the limitations of the medium. That is an important point to bring up, Rodrigo, and, and something that we've touched on in previous episodes, but it's probably worth restating here. As a GM, it's important to be open to lines of communication for your players, both in the public out of character, but also private messages. Allow them to voice their opinion and don't judge that their opinion is of less value because it doesn't agree with yours, but be really honest and open to, hey, this makes me uncomfortable. Can we tone it back a little bit? It's not they're just being a killjoy. It, it really makes them uncomfortable. It's their valid opinion. And I think, you know, from a level of detail perspective, I just jump the horror movie genre for a second and say, compare an Alfred Hitchcock film to the Saw energy. In terms of level of detail and what's shown on screen, there's a completely different level of respect for the audience's maturity level, for lack of a better word, between the two parts of the same genre. And that's where I think we can help our guide our GMs toward the more nuanced approach of uh, the master versus the, the more graphic modern approach. The shock, if you will. And I will say this, I know we've brought it up in the past, but... Uh, the concept of an X card does exist, and you can kind of translate it over to Mythweavers. It's a little easier in a tabletop setting, where you actually can say, hey, immediately, whereas it might take a day or so for it to get thrown. But the concept still works, regardless of the medium. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar, an X card is something that anyone can pull out and just throw it on the table and say, hey, that's not cool, that's not appropriate, and everybody should understand that an X card is immediate cause to cease conversation about the current topic and move on to something else. Um, and this is a great way for groups to police themselves and not necessarily get a staff member involved, but it's a good way to, you know, keep things within the lines of everybody's comfort level. Yeah, it's uh, funny that you bring that up because when I was going through the notes for this, I was uh, reminded of a uh, question and answer that I had come across a couple of weeks ago, actually, and I'll post that in the chat here now, uh, talking about, uh, and of course, uh, X cards. Um, it's, it's valuable to think about, um, not only in terms of, player comfort, but also to level of detail a little bit, um, find myself having to, you know, whenever I'm doing anything, having to think to myself, is this what I want to be doing? If you are finding yourself, you know, maybe spending an hour, hour and a half writing a post describing some gory scene, you should take a step back and ask yourself, is that what this particular game is about? Is that what I want to spend my time doing to, uh, uh, sort of skip over that, say, yes, it happened, and move on and get to the part where we take down the big bad evil guy and save the kingdom. There's that little bit of perspective that you need to keep when you're doing anything, not not just role-playing. I think that's a great lead-in to you know, the next part of the topic as it was uh, laid out in Nathan's copious notes here, which is what are some of the techniques that we can uh, encourage people to use to, to bring about that type of uh, approach? Uh, we talked about innuendo a little bit. Um, you just talked about Rodrigo about, uh, having the big bad evil guy that you're trying to take down. We really don't have to show all his, uh, his evil machinations necessarily on screen. Sometimes it's all you'd have to do is come across somebody who's carrying a set of orders to do something malicious. They didn't carry it out. Maybe you stopped them from carrying it out. But that's the type of, it could happen. It's just not something that we're showing here in this thread. Or you can show, like, the after effect. So like say the big bad evil guy ordered a town to be burned down. You don't want to show the actual burning of the town, but you want to show like the after effect. So you have the characters come to the town and it's mostly ash and you can very briefly skim over the scene of destruction without going into very much detail at all. Just basically say it's a burned down town, there are dead people, move on. And even that level of description would fall way below PG-13. I know there are PG-13 movies that have shown way worse things uh, than that. Right. And you can, there are definitely lesser evils that you can show. I mean, you can talk about the the henchman 
mistreating the villagers in the town without necessarily having to go to the level of uh, crucifixions everywhere. You know, that type of um, you know, distinction can easily be made. Just because you don't see it happening doesn't mean that it couldn't be happening somewhere else in the place where the action of the player characters isn't. Are we, are we fully segueing into the next sort of topic? Not yet. So we still have Let's one. talk about sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one way to do it. <laughs> a mommy bird and a daddy bird love each other very much. Um, their baby bird, a book that will tell them all about this, so we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> when it comes to romance and sexual encounters, inevitably, the number one thing you should do is just fade to black. Have them go through the door, and then go to the next scene. Uh, it just, you don't have to go any further than the door, and that's it. Yeah, I think you can hardly go wrong with that level of boundary, and that's that's actually pretty clear. There's plenty of room for flirting and courtship and other things in public, but when we're getting intimate, it needs to be behind closed doors and we're on the outside. Literally, behind closed doors. <laughs> As in... When you're writing, the door closes, and that's the end of the post. <laughs> I think that covers that pretty thoroughly. I think so. We got a lot more out of that than I thought we were going to, considering how little notes we actually had for that topic. We ramble well. <laughs> Alright, so our next topic, we're going to go straight into it, is designing challenges and encounters. So, the primary goal of this is to kind of make encounters and challenges interesting. We're not trying to say, for this specific system, you should have XYZ challenge or encounter. You should use these monsters and these uh, bad guys. We're trying to give much more general tips. We're trying to talk about like the idea of a challenge or an encounter. Um, so, yeah. We're just we're going to give some general tips that may or may not apply to all genres and systems, but we're going to try. Well, I think we need to start off with why are we having an encounter? Or why do we do anything in the game? It's because it's fun, interesting, exciting. So if you're creating an encounter or a challenge of any sort, it needs to have that interest factor, something that draws people into doing it. I mean, yeah, we love to roll dice, and yeah, we love to you know, slay dragons. But if the encounter itself and the outcome thereof is not interesting in and of itself, don't do it. And... That actually leads into a really good point that regardless of what the challenge or encounter is, both paths of success and failure should have interesting outcomes. Um, so like Mick the Rogue points out, random encounters. Random encounters, they're literally just something to do. They're not good, especially in play-by-post, but they... It's, well, in play-by-post, they slow things down primarily. But also, they don't provide this interesting challenge. It's literally just some monsters show up, you have to beat the monsters. And that's not interesting regardless of whether they fail or succeed. Um, it's just a combat encounter. For these particular examples, we're talking about more than that. We're talking about things where things can go good and something interesting will happen, or things can go badly and something interesting will happen, regardless of what the something interesting is. One note I would tack on to that is you shouldn't necessarily have things set up where there's only one way to accomplish a good outcome. Bottlenecking players into only one path for things to go well can backfire, especially if you start getting specific to the point of, oh, this one skill check determines if things go good or bad. Leave a little wiggle room, leave a few different ways things can be accomplished and a few different ways things can be botched. And in the vein of leaving multiple options, you shouldn't make it so that only one character can succeed at the challenge. You should make it so that there's a multitude of ways that everybody can work together or act independently, but still everybody can succeed or fail. Now, when we consider player options, one of the things that every good GM should be aware of is what resources do the players have access to either on their person or that they can call in at whatever level of notice and make sure that you know, maybe if the players aren't quite remembering that they have those resources because play by post can occasionally take a long time to remind them perhaps of 
some of the things that you may be thinking about that they could do that they may not even be thinking about that they could do. Because again, if you build that encounter that relies on one or two uh, specific things where you, you thought, hey, they could win the encounter this way, and it never even crosses their mind, you may have set up a situation where there's really not a way they can win the encounter because they're not thinking of the thing that they can do. I think that there's an element of, you know, when you have certain things in mind that they can't, just don't leave it to, to just one thing. Subtle hints or reminders that they do have these things available to them, leading the players in, in a little bit of a way. That's, that's got kind of a bad rap, I understand. I, so my group is, uh, is, uh, mostly my roommates actually, um, which includes two players and to the types of stories and types of, um, that they really like. And so I often find myself, uh, in terms of combat encounters, but mostly doing sorts of things. Usually then that, that ends up being a situation where someone is relying on this or information or, um, or social contacts or other things generally don't get, uh, especially uh, memories and information and such. Those are things that not only don't really get written down on a character sheet, but that the character doesn't even necessarily know that they have about the world because the world that they're playing in is not the one that we're actually in, where we have a ton of familiarity with uh, history, with uh, uh, geopolitical and sociopolitical uh, situations. And so sometimes you do have to uh, toss them a lifeline characters uh, uh or players rather uh the power to um to say you know to just say something as though that's in the history of the world and then you can override that or go with it as as you want to that's ask an you point you know what's what's available to them in these sorts of situations that they may not be thinking of um to necessarily be uh, a gm who's just an antagonist just a referee of the world and you can call on the referee when you need to. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there, but that is an excellent point about information availability. And especially in play-by-post, can be a challenge because if the game goes on for some time, they may have forgotten that critical two or three details that you gave them two years ago that you're expecting them to call up to, uh, to make a decision now. I have some. I have an intrigue game that is now running on five or six years, and I had to remind the two protagonists of their... Uh, previous research into a particular uh, social entry. So I will I would like to bring up that on the opposite end of that spectrum, you may need to remind them of something, but at the same time you also have to be prepared for them to come up with something that you never in a million years expected them to do. So uh, players are always unpredictable at best. So I, I always find that when I present my players with a challenge, there's always going to be a solution I did not think of that they bring up within the first few minutes. <laughs> um, it, to go off of what you said about players being unpredictable um, and coming up with solutions that you may not even have thought of, um, not really so much a solution, but they may also just sidestep the problem, challenge or the encounter or the entire plot hook entirely. Um, for that reason, and, and I find that this uh, player's mind is to make sure that there's a concept of stakes. Like there is something at risk, whether or not it's a, a dire consequence of somebody is going to die, or it's just a situation where it would be on friendly terms with you, or, you know, this desired outcome that, that this character had is not going to be fulfilled. A very theatrical sort of perspective on this, uh, on writing your, your adventures or your encounters. Um, the thing is at stake, nobody cares or the audience, anybody reading, whatever, um, nobody cares. There's no motivation for them to be involved in the situation at all, let alone rack their brains coming up with a, with a solution or going to, uh, into their weapons or going into their packs and finding, you know, they might have potions, they might have magic items, they might have all sorts of things. And it can be combat encounter, for example, you know, difficulty of, of the combat is going to be one indication to them of how much of their resources they should be using, whole sort of situation, but also in a, in a combat one. There should be some either intrinsic to them or, or extrinsic sort of uh, consequences of uh, success or failure that also guide their resources uh, that they're actually going to put into this encounter, if that makes sense. It does, and it's an important point to bring up that 
not every encounter has to end with a success being the status quo and a failure being some sort of loss. Uh, you can go the other way. You can have the failure be they didn't capitalize on a situation and the success be now that there's a new opportunity available for them or a new resource that they've acquired, a new contact they've made, something that enhances their abilities rather than just keeps them uh, going on the path they were on before. I really like the idea of, I'm actually stealing this from the Mythic Game Master emulator system, and I really like the idea of you succeed, but, or you succeed and, or you fail, but, or you fail and. And those four phrases, they all sound very similar, but really it's it's just a way to expand on success and failure. So it's like, you succeed and something else also good happens. Or you fail and something else also bad happens. On the flip side, you have you succeed, but something kind of mediocre bad happens. Or you fail, but some good comes out of the situation, regardless of your failure. That's excellent advice. As long as you don't ever go with the you succeed, but it was all for naught, or at least to minimize that, then... Uh, the players feel the sense of accomplishment, which keeps up the interest level, which gets back to keeping the game going, which is what we're all about. On the subject of uh, you succeed, but it was all for naught, you know, very similar to the, um, and then he woke up, yes, that a lot of story writers pull. Um, back to late elementary school, early middle school English class, you think about the hero's journey and these sorts of patterns that the uh, great stories tend to fall into. The driving thing about this is that the hero or whomever starts out one way, and then they go through this conflict, and they come out where that is a change in uh, the amount of resources that are available to you because you used up your potions and now you don't have them. That's a really sort of superficial change. Encounter, and you have... Uh, classic sort of uh, putting a paladin between a rock and a hard place in terms of, of their morals, um, you know, challenging this, this character in a, a way that is very about who they are, not about necessarily what what they're doing or how well they're doing it, um, of effect not just on the world, but on the actual characters, um, sort of uh, figure out what is what is going to make this interesting, like what is to, to scene writing um, the arc of this story or what is the arc of this encounter you know where do we start where do we end how do we make that transformation uh, in the middle here uh, such that where someone starts from a different point than where they started last time and that's what makes a, a continuing story really interesting is that one scene doesn't start the same way as as the scene before it uh, i was talking with some friends uh, uh the other night i don't you're with the musical company by uh, stephen sondheim um who are basically the same thing, and you could end the entire, you know, it's two-hour musical, you could end it after the first hour, and nothing would be different. Um, and there's there's very little more aggravating and dissatisfying than stories that are static. With the end of that rant, I'll pass off. <laughs> no, I think you're right. and It's a, a trap for GM. Often you have an idea of the perfect story that you want to go tell, and you already know it by heart. It's it's this wonderful writing that's just begging to be poured out of you. Don't go inflict that on your players. Write a book. <laughs> if you don't want the story to be about what the players come up with and what they do, you're in the wrong medium. And also about what they do, going back to, to what I was saying about what I do for my group, um, and, and going back to our early conversation about boundaries and what people are comfortable with, especially when we're playing online and largely you know, grouping up with a bunch of randoms, it can be good to not it can be good. I think everybody should get to know the people that they're going to be playing with. What is their play style? What stories do they find interesting? Um, what sorts of TV shows do they watch? What sort of movies do they like? Um, what engages this person? Because it may not be what engages you, and it may not be what engages the other players. And so you can you can sort of find out pretty early on if, you know, eh, this person's a, a fine role player and they're a cool person, but they just don't work for this group, or I need to change what it is that I'm going to present to this group. Uh, so that everybody can have a good time. All right, I'm going to throw my lasso on you guys and uh, bring you back in. So uh, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit more about how we actually go about designing 
a challenge. So like, let's say we're designing a challenge where the players have to climb up a rocky cliff face. How would we go about doing that? What's the context? What's at the bottom? What's at the top? (laughs) Uh, That's what I'm asking. Like, why are we at this cliff face? (laughs) Well, that was kind of my point. You design the encounter to make it, there's either a reason why you're climbing up to get to the top, or there's a reason why you're climbing away from the bottom. Climbing the cliff face shouldn't just be the, oh, we're, we're riding from castle A to castle B and halfway in between. Boom. Suddenly cliff face. There needs to be reason for the cliff to be there. Now, maybe you're at the bottom of the cliff. It's the side of a canyon and there was some sort of, um, cataclysm upstream and there's millions of gallons of water rushing down the river at you and you have to get to the top or else. That's one reason why you might want to climb this cliff or maybe you your cliff is halfway between you and the uh, terrible tower of treasure and just to get to the door you need to climb the cliff because the the mad wizard built this terrible tower on top of a cliff just for the lulls that is an excellent point and was actually kind of what i was driving at is you don't want to design something that is pointless you don't want to make something challenging just for the sake of making it challenging if it has no reason to exist as a challenge or an encounter then it shouldn't be in your game. So, like, even something as simple as climbing a cliff, you can put a lot of thought into it and say, okay, I need to give them some sort of challenge between point A and point B that makes it so that getting there was feels like a journey of some kind. So every encounter should or challenge should feel purposeful. It should feel like, okay, we have to do this to get to the next thing, but... Also, it was a really cool thing to experience as part of the game. As uh, I might temper to... that by saying that um, D&D can sort of be, uh, just to pick on it in particular because it's a, a war game, uh, sometimes it can feel like a war of attrition is you know not untrue. You know, uh, Encounters at your uh, difficulty class are designed to use a certain percentage of your resources so that you, know, you can only do so many of them. Um, spend a lot of time on scaling that wall. Um, but in, in that sort of case might be, you know, uh, the players have an option to scale the wall and maybe they will get to wherever they're going faster, but they'll be more tired, sustained injuries, you know, while on the climb or something like that. Um, these sorts of things. And you can include the sorts of, um, you know, just general wearing down of players because that has some without spending, you know, an hour and a half on it. All right, so you've got this cliff. Players have climb skills. They have fly spells. They have means of getting up to the top. Some are easier than others. Let's talk about how we make the challenge more interesting still by adding complexity to it. Maybe the rock face is not particularly stable uh, and fly is not an option due to high winds. At what point do you are you taking away too many options from the players by making it challenging versus... Uh, making it an interesting encounter that forces them to uh, to think, if you will, outside the box. Well, I think the easiest way to make it more complex without taking away options is to turn it into a combat encounter. Like, you, you have the challenge of, okay, we have to climb this cliff face, but also we have goblins on the ledges shooting arrows at us. So they have to figure out how to deal with the goblins and, and <laughs> climb this cliff face. Absent Wizard suggests that you turn the cliff into the enemy, and they have to actually fight the cliff. Uh, Just like fighting gazebos. That would be one extremely gargantuan Earth Elemental. The cliff steps on you. Please re-roll your characters. (laughs) But no, I mean, you you can use... You can leverage things to make things more complex or less complex. So, like, maybe the winds are howling so they can't fly but one of the players has a grappling hook that they can use. And now, because of the howling winds, throwing the grappling hook is more difficult, whereas normally it'd be just a trivial task, but throwing it to the top of the cliff is difficult now, and it it involves some clever thinking and maybe lucky rolls to get up the cliff face now. Again, I think we need to go back to to the context of it. Um, Why are they trying to get to the top? Repercussions of not getting to the top of this because um, that's going to inform how much they're going to uh, throw at this. You know, if it's, if it's a matter of you need, you know, three climb rolls successful in a row limit, 
they can just spend all day climbing a wall. Um, I think Eric suggested there is, you know, a uh, hundred million gallons of water rushing towards them. They might, uh, uh, try something else. Um, sure. And I think when you present any challenge to your players, you need to communicate stuff like that up front. So like, obviously a million gallons of water coming towards you is a pretty big threat and you need to communicate that up front and say, Hey, this is going to be a little difficult, but you have to do it or else you die. So you kind of have to put them in between a rock and a hard place to kind of force them to do the challenge, but also have it make sense in this, in the whole grand scheme of things. So like maybe the big bad evil guy blew up a dam and all this water's coming now. And now they have to climb out of the uh, semi dried riverbed or something. I don't know. <laughs> and if or maybe they're uh, in a, you know, let's, let's not necessarily say that this is a like, Thing, but now uh, this is, uh, they've fallen, you know, into a, a, a crevice in ice to uh, climb their way back out. Um, freezing, starvation, whatever. You know, those are uh, still very, very serious consequences to not getting out, but they're not so time sensitive as the water rushing toward you. Um, the, the, you know, the scenery of it, you know, now... Uh, grappling hooks, but do they have uh, climbing shoes? Are both sides of the crevice close enough together where they can sort of like span it and climb up that way to uh, to make the climb a little bit easier? Um, or, you know, if they're if they're deep in this crevice and there's a little bit of a ravine, you know, is there uh, running water? Can they find a way uh, avoiding climbing but still being a participant in the encounter? Can they explore and, and see what else is going on here? Um, Tunnels. Danger, you know, they have to... Sorry? Tunnels. Tunnels. So, you know, if, if you if you think about changing the scenery uh, just a little bit, I'm totally dating myself now, but um, the uh, Jurassic Park game for Sega Genesis, do uh, you guys remember that? That's right, folks. We are that old. Dang. I have yes. never but played, I played it. But I played it in middle school. Um, there was this terrible level uh, where you're on a boat. There's just... For some reason, you're able to go up waterfalls in this boat. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, so uh, again, changing, changing scenery again from, uh, from ice crevice to, uh, now you're trying to scale your way up a waterfall. And so now there is the, uh, the, uh, water rushing down at you, slippery, uh, uh handholds. Um, you get all the way to the top. Maybe there is some sort of cave somewhere in the middle that you're trying to get to. Um, uh, as you're trying to think of ways to make something interesting or find ways that are uh, appropriate to add difficulty or to um, some of the options that your players might otherwise have, um, just thinking about a change of scenery provides you some uh, some ways to do that. And similarly, you don't want to present them with something that they have no hope of overcoming. So, like, if you present them with a waterfall, they should have some way to overcome that, uh, regardless of what the method is. You can't present them with an impossible challenge. That's just setting the expectation too high. Um, and if you do decide to take away certain ways to overcome it, you have to be able to reward them when they come up with a creative or plausible solution to overcome the challenge. Um, so in my experience, challenges and traps and those sorts of things can often be rewarded just as easily as a combat encounter can. Variety is the spice of life. Not every encounter should be the same type of structural design. And there are plenty of you know, ways to come up with varied encounters, but you know, maybe you're... So if you're struggling to come up with an idea for a chip, <laughs> there are resources out there to help. One of the ones that Nathan pulled, which he'll be dropping in chat in a moment, is 101 RPG Traps and Challenges. And this is just, it's kind of like a blog post, but it's basically a really long list of things that you can throw at your players, and it's different traps and puzzles and challenges and just all sorts of things that you can throw at your players if you're struggling to come up with an idea for something. And, by the way, there's, like, infinite of these on the internet. There are so many of these lists and, like, compilations out there. All you have to do is Google them, and you'll be fine. That's something that I find myself doing from time to time, uh, especially because, like I said, I have a, a bit of a, a non-standard group. Um, you know, going and finding a movie or a TV show or a scene or or anything like that, 
from a uh, you think is fitting to your style of play, you know, try to describe uh, the plot or try to describe the um, the conflict. Uh, you know, try to try to really get it down to to bare bones and get it down to the, just sort of like the structures of what is going on. Um, people who write for video games or who write for TV or who write for movies, while not necessarily really good at it, they do get paid a whole lot more than we do to go do it, and so they are totally valid of inspiration for good ideas or ideas that have worked because you watched the show or you watched the movie and it worked. Not to, not to discount any of the random plot hooks or random uh, encounter sort of generators. If you're looking for something that is that is more nuanced or um, more complex, looking to to fiction and other media for your sources of inspiration can be really successful. All right. Well, we are going on almost fifty ish minutes, so um, I think we need to probably cut this topic here. We'll have to finish the rest of it next time. Um, I know we said we were going to talk about designing combat encounters, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up here just so we have enough time to get through the rest of the show. Um, so yeah, does anyone have any last minute thoughts they want to throw out there before we move on? And I roll with it, man. All right, let's let's move on to the uh, game of the week. So this week's game of the week is In Search of the Unknown, being run by B. Watford. In Search of the Unknown is a D&D 5th edition game, but that's not all. It's a total conversion from the original D&D adventure by the same name, written by Mike Carr. It was designed as one of the introductory modules for Dungeons & Dragons, and its influence can still be felt to this very day. In Search of the Unknown is an old-school dungeon crawl with exploration elements, and if you've never played it or you're looking to try your hand at D&D 5th edition for the first time, I cannot think of a better module to jump into. With B. Watford being the DM of this game, I also can't imagine a better GM to run this type of game. B. Watford is looking for 3-8 to eight players, and applications close on Saturday, May 12th, so there's still plenty of time to get in an application. You'll need the time, too, since B. Watford's application process is definitely one of the most in-depth processes out there. The results of that process are always incredible in my experience, though, so even if you don't make it into the game, I'd encourage you to give it a try if you're looking to become a better character builder. It's probably worth noting that B. Watford is our first two-time winner of Game of the Week. Is he? I thought someone else had won twice already. I don't remember, though. I'm not sure. Maybe I missed one, but uh, we do have uh, several people who had come up frequently, so either our style is uh, stale or they're just really all that good. <laughs> I think it's more likely they're all that good. I'm safe from the list. That's all that matters. <laughs> all right. So, this week... Instead of the question and answer segment, we are trying out something new. The free-for-all! In this segment of the show, we're going to open the floor for questions and answers, but we're also going to allow myself and my fellow casters to talk about anything we'd like. This is definitely going to be very unstructured, but I think this will work out well, and instead of answering questions the whole time, we'll also be able to get creative and talk about things that aren't necessarily related to Mythweavers and Play-By-Post. So... Before we get into that, we always have the mandatory question, and that is, what's making us happy this week? We will start with Eric. Oh, goodness. Have you read mine yet? We'll end with Eric, trust me. Okay. Colin, you're up first. <laughs> um, I'm getting to design tooling for a robot arm, which is kind of awesome because I haven't been able to do that before. That is really cool, actually. <laughs> uh, Rodrigo, you're up. Um, sir. Um, I've got an easy out. Uh, finally getting to join all of you fine people on a Saturday evening. Suck up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's definitely been really good to have you here. And the first topic we talked about today, I really am happy to have you here for that. Because, um, well, I mean, it's your site. So having your input on that sort of thing is <laughs> in invaluable. Otherwise, they look to me to be the one that speaks on policy, and that's just terrifying. <laughs> it has driven him to drink before. <laughs> sure, let's use that as the reason. Just roll with it, man. Just roll with it. All right, so what's making me happy this week is I have always been kind of a playing card enthusiast. Like, I've never really looked at them all that hard, but I've always really liked certain decks of playing cards, and... 
in the last couple of days, I've found that there's an entire community around playing cards and like enthusiast level decks of cards, which is something I never thought would even possibly exist. But I guess I shouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, but anyway, my, my collection is about to explode in variety. So, um, yeah, the most recent ones I've picked up are the Thorns and Roses decks, which are designed by Steve Minty and are inspired by Shakespeare's work. Um, I'll throw the Kickstarter link here in the Discord deck, or in the Discord chat. So you guys can check that out if you really want to. They're stunning. They're utterly gorgeous. Just like beautiful cards. <laughs> and Eric. All right, well, this is a, a kind of combination sad and happy, and, and the two don't necessarily balance out, but I want to put this out there because, hey, I've got the opportunity to do that there. I'm a big fan of Earthworld, which is a gaming webcomic uh, where a strategy genius game master gets summoned to a world based on turn-based warfare to be the perfect warlord against a near-impossible battle. Well, the creator's wife, Linda, was recently diagnosed with liver cancer, which is that kind of long-odds struggle. And I was really inspired this week because, well, A, the creator went and put it out there and told us all about it and said, hey, this is going to be a big deal and it's going to consume a lot of my time. I want to keep the story going, but I'm going to have to change gears. Uh, and the readership really poured out an immense show of support. I mean, funding pledges almost doubled overnight. And there were readers out there who were cancer researchers and doctors, and they're giving their own professional time to provide support and direction. Um, and heck, he even posted that one of the readers had direct messaged him and said, hey, if she needs a liver donor and I'm a match, I'll be glad to help out. Um, that's that's the type of community we have here, friends. Um, I don't care what Jack Chick said about us being demon-worshipping spawns of Satan. Gamers are awesome. Thank you. Um, if you want to read Rob's webcomic, which I highly recommend because it's a really awesome story, um, but Linda's also blogging about her journey as she goes into uh, what's going to be a very difficult time. Uh, you can read more about it at www.earthworld.com. That's really hard to follow up, for the record. That's why I said he needs to go last. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we will now move into the official free-for-all. So if you have questions, you can ask them. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about some stuff. So uh, what's what's up, guys? How's it going? <laughs> it's soccer season, which means it's going and going and going and going and going. But it's a lot of fun. Colin, how's your 3D printer doing? Yeah. <laughs> when your buddy says, yes, you can borrow the 3D printer, he hasn't really been using it much. You know, there's probably a reason beyond just that he doesn't know how to do 3 design. That thing's getting drop kicked. Can a cheapo one? Oh no, that's the worst part. It's a $350 one. It looks pretty. It prints horribly. <laughs> I've seen it. It's true. That's too bad. We had a uh, an interesting training that was given at the office about uh, some of the really high-end 3D printers and how they can basically be used to print parts that would be impossible to manufacture in any traditional way. Um, you can make really, really intricate mechanical systems and rely on a piece that there would be no way for you to have reached inside this volume and machined that shape. It's just physically impossible. So, yeah, yep. mechanical going printing. Through, going through my school, we had one of those. Liquid media, UV-hardened education price was $500 per bag of liquid media. That's ridiculous. That's so expensive. Yeah, yeah but we're doing it with, like, centered aluminum. To give you an idea, Nathan, this uh, printer that we had in school, I printed 1032 screw threads at quarter scale, and they worked still. Hmm. At least until I snapped the threaded rod on the adjustment. <laughs> so I rescued my first game a while back on the site. I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but uh, I have finally gone through the GM Rescue Society, and I have found an abandoned game that I have picked up. Actually, I found a pair of abandoned games. They were both the same GM, and I picked up both of them, and I finally got those games back up and running this weekend. So, I'm I'm patting myself on the back, darn it, because that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> Woo! Go you! <laughs> they are Pathfinder Kingmaker games. So... 
should be interesting moving forward. I already had to read through about 30 pages of gameplay to figure out what they had and hadn't done. That was an experience. Alright, so Dingmamon wants to know, if you could pick one magic item, what would it be? Uh, nothing with wishes, standard, no che- cheesing the question rules. I think I said something about heal the last time that uh, we had this question come up a couple weeks ago. Hmm. Can I get a deck of mini cards? Or whatever it is? Uh, deck of, yeah, it's a deck of mini cards. Many things? Yeah, that one. Things. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you well, my friend. Have fun. Nice knowing you. Yeah, I think I'd want a deck of mini things. How did Nathan die? Well, he drew the seven of clubs. <laughs> That's kind of hard to answer without knowing, like, overall power level that we're going for uh, unless we just mean like the style no, this, of this is real world if you could have an item with you right now what it would it be Colin I'm trying to think of the magic items it's been a while <laughs> I think as weird as it may sound I'd go for the immovable rod hmm. <laughs> I, I always liked Get that sailor mind out of the gutter Eric I always liked the analysis of the immovable rod and what it would imply like theoretically if it if it actually did not move when activated it would plow into the planet and through the planet and then come out the other side and just destroy the entire planet if it actually did not move but it moves relative to where you put it (laughs) it's in your reference plane yeah well, Chimi, in some editions, the immovable rod actually could not be moved by any means. Oh, does that mean that it doesn't exist in space-time, then? I mean, it... I mean, I'm not a physicist, so I don't know. <laughs> and it is also moving fairly quickly, so if it can't be moved by any means, then it's just going to fly away very quickly. Fly away very quickly. And it would plow... A line across the entire planet, just demolishing things as it goes. I guess. That's why. What's the uh, what's the rationale for that? I mean, gravity. It's so if 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 the rod rotates with the planet, then it's still technically moving. But if it doesn't rotate with the planet, or if it doesn't move re- uh, with reference to anything else and it just stays in one XYZ coordinate for all eternity, then, from what I understand, it would just smash everything in its path. Or that mo- tried to move through it, it would smash everything. Okay. Because depending on where you place it and where the uh, direction and how fast the galaxy local cluster uh, uh, planet are moving, um, as soon as you set it, it would be very, very far away if it weren't actually sort of layman's understanding of the physics is that there, there isn't a real like XYZ point where it would end up being, but there is a uh, Q or whatever ends up getting used for the uh, for the um, there's a, a point in space and time that it would have gotten actually. If, if it can't move from there, then it would not exist in future points of time. Oh, I see what you're saying. Hmm. That thing, I would hope, comes with an instruction manual saying it is Willing to to move relative to when it is set, because uh, there are some odd implications if not. So I guess is, the question is, can it move through time but not space? It would also have to move through space because space and time are, are uh, totally intertwined. Oh, okay, yeah. Like I said, I'm not a physicist, so I don't know. I recommend uh, 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 Leonard Susskind is a uh, at Stanford. Um, and he does a uh, whole set of courses of physics for uh, for the community at Stanford, so for non-majors uh, or people who have been away from school for a long time. Um, he does go through through the math, but he tries to do the minimum uh, of math that he has to. And all of his lectures are available on YouTube. Fantastic. Um, your um, understanding, he is the only person that I know of who argued with Stephen Hawking and turned out to be correct. Interesting. I will definitely have to look into that. Alright, so now that Rodrigo and I have dominated the conversation for about ten minutes, uh, Colin and Eric, do you guys have anything you want to talk about? <laughs> I like the bourbon I got. Ooh, we haven't talked about alcohol yet. I know. Feels like we haven't talked about alcohol for a while. 
Well, you haven't been on the show for a while. Wah, wah. So vicious. <laughs> so what are we all drinking? I have some Jack Daniels, app, or not Jack Daniels, um, Jim Beam apple with Sprite mixed together. I've finished my Dr. Pepper. I'm about to move on to Balvenie. Double wood. Ooh, very nice. I'm trying out a bottle of Eagle Rare Kentucky bourbon tonight. Is that Eagle Rare? Huh? I've heard good. I, I've heard good things about Eagle Rare. Yeah, I almost went for uh, Woodford Reserve, but I've had that a lot, and I'd never tried it. The uh, Eagle Rare, so seemed like a good experiment. And the last one, I uh, I'm going with beer this time, and this is uh, the Black Metal Farmhouse Imperial Stout from Jester King. Well, free advertising for them. Um, it is very nice. It's nice to have someone else on the show who drinks dark beer, because I feel so outnumbered when Ruben and Colin and, and folks are talking about IPAs and session ales, and I'm over here. Just give me a nice triple block. <laughs> we already uh, acknowledged we can't save you, Eric. I actually don't drink beer, so... Mine is a dark, dark soul. Eric, you don't have a soul. The Navy took it. So what does that mean I have if I don't even drink beer? Oh no, Eric's lack life. of a soul doesn't connect <laughs> to the beer. <laughs> Taking out the soul leaves more room for beer. Oh, I see. That's true. Alright. So does anyone have anything else before we wrap up for the evening? I don't think all of us answered the uh, question. Uh, I think Eric answered it during the last show. So. Yeah, I'll just go with a straight-up potion to heal. Nice. Uh, probably Bag of Holding or uh, Gauntlets of Ogre Strength for me. Those are iconic, but very pragmatic. Alrighty. Well, before we wrap up for the evening, I would just like to take a moment to remind everyone that this episode of Weaving Myths is made possible by our Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. We also do special bonus content for our patrons, such as Weaving Myths Does Tabletop, and the first two episodes of that are actually available on Twitch, and the third episode will be coming soon. We still need to schedule it, but it is coming soon. Uh, contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. One last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for streaming, free of charge. So thank you everybody so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat. As always, I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Eric. So long, thanks for all the games. Rodrigo. Until next time. And Colin. It's been fun, folks. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.